Matthew chapter 23, our text for this morning is verses 13 through 24. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so grateful for the blood of Jesus, about which we sang. I'm so grateful that you are our God, our maker, that you are holy. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you have given us the chance to gather. And I pray your merciful blessings on us this day. God, please work in our midst in a supernatural way. Build your church for your glory. Change our lives. Let us know that we've been in the presence of God under the word of God this day. And Lord, I can do nothing to cause that. Only you, by your spirit, can make all this work. And we ask you for great grace and power in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There are words in the Bible that when we see them, they need to get our attention. There are words that carry with them a significance. Let me give you an example, not from today's message, but the word blessed. When you think about a passage like the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus repeatedly say certain people are, who are citizens of the kingdom of God are blessed, right? Who's blessed? The meek, the merciful, peacemakers, all the rest. Blessed, blessed, blessed. This is good. But what does it mean? Because we use the word bless you when somebody sneezes. But what does it mean? What does it mean when we really use the word blessed? Uh, Blessed is to receive goodness or favor from God. Blessed is something you want. Right? Now, the opposite of being blessed, that's something you don't want, 
we might, we might say that is to be cursed. To be cursed is to receive badness, to receive lack of favor. It's to receive judgment from God. Now, I don't mean when I say that that God ever gives us something inappropriate. He never does. His ways are always perfect. But the Bible is clear that there are people who will receive the wrath of God who will receive the judgment of God, who will receive from God the opposite of blessing. And there's a word you need to catch in Scripture that speaks of receiving the opposite of blessing. The word is the word woe. Think about Isaiah when he saw a vision of God. Isaiah, when he saw God, feared that the holiness of God would utterly destroy him. Isaiah feared that he would fall to pieces. He he feared he would literally disintegrate because of the goodness of God in comparison to Isaiah's own sinfulness. And do you remember what Isaiah said about himself? He said, woe is me. Sad thing is, when we hear the phrase, woe is me, we we hear it today with a mocking lilt. We think of that phrase with a silly sort of self-pity. We might make fun of somebody having a pity party with an exaggerated, oh, woe is me. But when we do that, we make the word woe in our vocabulary lose its force. Think biblically with me. We want the blessing of God, right? We love the idea of God pouring out on us his greatest goodness. That is a right desire. God, I want your best. Well, just as much as we want that blessing, we should want to avoid the curse, God's pronouncement of woe. If we love the idea of great joy and goodness from God, we should also be desperate to avoid God's judgment. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why we love the grace of God so very much. The blood of Jesus covers our sin, keeps us from the curse, and buys for us the blessed. This is good. Well, our passage for today, we're in the middle of Jesus' last public discourse in the book of Matthew. He just recently silenced the religious teachers who were trying to trap him and get him in trouble with the people or with the Roman government. And now Jesus is turning the tables and speaking the truth of God that condemns the religious leaders of his day. Last week, Jesus told us not to imitate the scribes and the Pharisees. And this week he is about to pronounce woe over them. This is not Jesus rejoicing in their downfall, but it is Jesus making it clear that these men are in danger of falling under the wrath of God if they don't repent of the kinds of evils that they're presently participating in. And Jesus knows they won't. Well, as we open this section, friends, we're going to come across seven woes. 
Seven times Jesus will speak the judgment, the curse of God over the religious leaders. It is a significant number, a complete pronouncement of the judgment that these people are going to face if they don't repent. This morning we'll see four of the seven woes. We'll find in that three points of application. Then in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll finish up this chapter with the final woes. The application points that you'll have today are a little bit longer because they kind of have two parts. But let's work together to see three righteous alternatives to religious hypocrisy. Point number one, do not focus on man-centered religion, but give others the gospel. Do not focus on man-centered religion, but give others the gospel. Look at 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single con- or proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This doesn't occur in a vacuum, this passage. In the first 12 verses of Matthew 23, we covered it last week, we saw that Jesus said that the religious leaders of his day did not practice the righteousness they preached. They're hypocrites. They love to burden people with regulations, but not help them actually live rightly. They love to look religious. They love to be thought of as religious. They love to be elevated in society because of their religiosity. But they seem to care less and less about the simple word and glory of God. So we shouldn't find it a surprise when Jesus shows us that these people are headed for disaster. Woe is coming their way. Do note that in Scripture... When a prophet pronounces the coming judgment of God on people, it almost always is connected with the call and assumed promise that if you will repent of your sin, you will escape the wrath to come. Well, here Jesus is saying something perfect and good and right. And he's saying something that is frightful and serious and heartbreaking. Here in the text, we find two of the seven woes, and I think they go together. They have to do with the way the Pharisees and the scribes deal with potential proselytes, converts to the religion, the nation of Israel, the Judaism. Verse 13, he pronounces woe on the hypocritical teachers for the way they slam the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. Didn't that make you shudder? They're hypocrites, Jesus said. Because, you know what? As the religious leaders of the people of God, they know that their job is to be inviting people into the kingdom of God. 
God has always made it clear to his followers that his kingdom is not simply and only for the physical descendants of Abraham. God has always been clear that his plan involves the whole world. His plan involves all nations. It always has. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In one of the single most significant verses in all of the scripture, God made it clear that the blessing he's promising to Abraham will be a blessing for all of the families, all the nations of the world. God intends his glory to encompass the globe. He intends to build a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. But the religious leaders, the people who should have known the word of God best among anybody in Israel, they are working directly against people entering the kingdom of God. The Jews were not entering the kingdom of God. They were angrily, obstinately rejecting the very Son of God. But they were also there fighting to prevent other people from listening to Jesus. They're fighting to prevent people from becoming citizens of the holy kingdom of God. Quick side note, you're going to see if you're reading a modern translation that you don't have a verse 14. How many of you caught that and thought, what's going on here? It happens, right? Scholars have found that more reliable, older manuscripts do not include verse 14. Later manuscripts, written years later, copied years later, included it. But, and when the verse numbering was done, that questionable verse, the one that the later manuscripts had but the earlier ones don't, uh, it was numbered. But the modern folks who are looking at more reliable, older manuscripts would say, no, I don't think that really should be there. If you're curious about what verse 14 is or was in the King James, it it condemns the Pharisees for making long, showy prayers and for impoverishing widows. Those are wrong things. The Pharisees really did it. And Jesus most certainly speaks to condemn those actions by the Pharisees in other places in Scripture. But the more reliable manuscripts don't include it here. Again, I just tell you that because I want you to know. I don't ever want you to think that we're not paying attention, okay? Now, verse 15, Jesus speaks of the odd evangelism, if you will, of the Pharisees. He says they will go to great lengths to make somebody into a proselyte, into a convert to the faith. They'll travel land and sea. Now, again, if you said that today, that's, yeah, that's a lot, right? If I said you'd go land and sea, think of how big a deal it was back then. They were scared to death of sea travel. Well, here's the problem. When the Pharisees made a convert... They converted the person not to the true faith of the word of God, but to the legalistic man-centered rules of the Pharisees. In many cases, the converts would become even worse legalists and even worse moralists than were the Pharisees. After all, how many times have you seen that somebody who follows a particular religious teacher somehow manages to adopt the worst characteristics of their heroes and then magnifies those traits for everybody to see. 
You ever notice that? This is why I try not to get people to follow me because I really do not want you to magnify my worst traits. (laughs) They're not good. The woes Jesus pronounces are serious. What do we do with them? In all of these points, we want to learn not to do what the Pharisees did. We want to learn a righteous alternative to what they were up to. So the first point, do not focus on man-centered religion, but give others the gospel. Now, why would I say don't focus on man-centered religion? That's what the Pharisees did. They failed in their religion as they focused more on the words of men than on the word of God. These men thought that following God, that pleasing God, it was about outward ceremony. They thought it was about doing the religious rituals rightly and perfectly. And they failed to see that the word of God calls us to trust in God by grace through faith for the gift of righteousness. They failed to see that the word of God is about loving God and loving people made in God's image. And sadly, there are many people who still believe that following God is merely about doing outward religious things. There are people who believe that if you do the right ceremonies, if you go to the right services, if you give the right amount of money, then you're going to be blessed. But if, if you avoid doing certain wrong things, they assume you're going to be blessed. And quite often, these people make their judgments about what's right and what's wrong, not based on the word of God, but based on their own best wisdom. They fail to see that God has shown us what he wants and who he is in the written word of God. So the religion of such people is earthly, it is fleshly, it is based on the opinions of men, it is focused on the actions of men, and it does not honor God, and we don't want to be like that. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Jesus says acting like that slams the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces and makes them sons of hell. Because let me tell you something, you convert somebody to moralism, to ceremonialism, but not to Jesus, you are helping them toward hell. What we want, friends, is a religious or a righteous alternative to religious hypocrisy here. And the right alternative here is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what's that? It's pretty simple. God is holy, right, perfect, pure, good, every way. You and I are sinners. There is no good deed and there is no religious action that we can take that will make us right with God. Not one. If we try to get to God through obedience to rules, participation in ceremonies, or avoiding certain kinds of evil, we will fail. You cannot work hard enough to build a ladder to heaven. It just won't work. But God, in his perfect wisdom, out of his great love, has provided the way for people to be rescued 
And it's not religious ritual. God has chosen to save a people for himself by his grace alone. How, you ask? God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice for sins, and to rise from the grave. Jesus came to save God's people from their sins. How do we get the grace of Jesus? Again, you're not saved through religious rituals or through your own goodness. You will not go to heaven because you eat something, drink something, or chant something. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When a person is saved by God, they turn away from their sins and they turn over their life to Jesus, and they place their faith in Jesus and his finished work. You can't work your way into salvation. Instead, you're saved when God makes your soul alive, and you lay all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your eternity of all of your soul in the finished work of Jesus. You rest in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. You believe Jesus is your only hope? You believe that he did everything that was required for you to go to heaven? You believe that Jesus is alive and not dead? You find that salvation has been given to you as a gift from God? And then you will be incredibly grateful to God for the glorious gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. See, part of being a religious hypocrite is making the faith about rules. How many of you were saved by obeying rules? I surely hope you don't think so. If you weren't saved by obeying the rules, neither should you slam the door of the kingdom of God in somebody's face by preaching to them a salvation based on good works. No. Give people the real gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is our mission. This glorifies God. Now, let me urge you to be careful here. You might think to yourself, sitting here, Providence Reformed Church, oh, we would never do that. I would never preach a work salvation, not me, right? Isn't that true that you wouldn't do that? Careful, this is a trick question. Could you tell? You guys know me already. It's not fair. I can't sneak anything by you. You know the gospel. But I want you to think about how you treat the people to whom you communicate the gospel. How do you treat the people you preach to? Do you use the right gospel words but present to somebody the idea that you've got to clean yourself up before you can be saved? Do you expect people to be ready to act like mature Christians while they are still unconverted? Yeah, we do call people to repent. We do call people to surrender to the Lord. 
But you and I should not expect that somebody will understand more than we understood when we were saved. And we should not expect that somebody would be cleaner than we were, than we were saved. How many of you, other than you who were saved as a little bitty kid, were a goody-goody when you got saved? Not many of us. Why would you expect that of the people out there? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus is the call to salvation. Amen? Point number two. Do not manipulate others. Do not manipulate others, but be honest. Do not manipulate others, but be honest. Bless you twice. 16 to 22 says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. I hope, for those of you who have been here with us through Matthew for a while, this takes your brain back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37, Jesus speaks strongly about the sinful way that the Jewish religious leaders were dealing with oaths. And here, the teaching is almost identical. Back in Jesus' day, the religious scholarship, they had developed a whole system of the proper way to make oaths. And along with that system, they developed a whole system of legal loopholes to make an oath not binding. Just imagine somebody, you know, swearing to you that they'll do something. I mean, legal sounding language, right? I swear by the temple that I will do so and so. And you take them at their word because, I mean, to you, the temple's a big deal. But then they don't fulfill their promise. And the leaders tell you, well, a promise made on the temple actually is nothing. Only if the word I swear by the gold in the temple is used. Does it really count? Honestly, what would you think of somebody doing that? All of us, all of us naturally know this is deception. To trick somebody by using a legal technicality is not righteous. To to make something that sounds like a promise when you have no intention of fulfilling that promise, is a sin. And the religious elite had the word of God to know it. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift, his, lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Y'all, young people, children, 
Old people, righteous people, people who love God, do not swear deceitfully, which means you don't lie. You don't make a promise and then try to shift a word to make that promise not binding. Just as crossing your fingers doesn't make a lie okay, no matter what the kids on the playground tell you, tricking somebody with legalities is not okay. Now what's worse, the lying promises that Jesus is condemning here were being made in the name of God. They were swearing by the temple, by the altar, even by heaven itself. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, 10 commandments, you know those, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19, verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. God is not a fan of dishonesty. God is not a fan of the misuse of his name. And God is especially offended when somebody uses his name falsely to try to get ahead of other people. So Christians do not manipulate others, but be honest. Make a commitment to the Lord that you are not going to be a liar. Make a commitment to God that you're going to be the kind of person that if I say it, I do it. I keep my word. When you say you will do something, follow through and do it. And please note, when you make a commitment that says, this is what I'll do, but then you just don't follow through on your commitment, you're starting to look like these guys. Weigh your words, weigh your promises carefully, and make a choice that says, I will keep my word even in situations where keeping my word hurts. Friends, Christians should be known as people you can count on to do what we say always. Third point, do not love rules, but value what God values. Do not love rules, but value what God values. 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the, great, the weightier matters of the law. Just justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining on a gnat, swallowing a camel. This woe, again, if you've been following along in Matthew, is no surprise. Back in chapter 12, we saw major conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees about the law and about mercy. Back in chapter 12, the Pharisees wanted to condemn the disciples for eating little pieces of grain on the Sabbath. You're rubbing it in your hands. You're harvesting. (laughs) You're threshing. No, I'm not. I'm peeling it best. The Pharisees even spoke out against Jesus casting a demon out of a man on the Sabbath. 
The Pharisees showed you that they would prefer to see people suffer than to see people compromise the rules of the Pharisees. And please remember that the rules the Pharisees wanted to enforce were not rules directly from Scripture, but they came from the Pharisees' additions to scriptural commands. The Pharisees' interpretations and attempted explanations of Scripture was what they were offended that Jesus was violating, not Scripture, because Jesus never violated Scripture. Well, here Jesus points to the tithing practices of the Pharisees. The word tithe means one-tenth. One-tenth is a tithe of something. And the law of God required that the people of Israel give the first tenth of their income, of their produce, every tenth of their, the animal of their flocks had to be given as an offering to the Lord. And I'm not going to work through all those regulations today, but the point was every person who lived in Israel would give for the sake of the worship of God and for the support of the nation. And there were multiple required tithes. There wasn't just one tithe, there were three. And some people would say, when it's all said and done, that an Israelite would be giving a little, little around, what, 23.5% of his income as his tithing practice. It was kind of like a mix of religious offering and the tax system all put together. Well, many Christians have taken this law as a pattern for their own giving. Let me, again, I don't want you to expose your finances to me here, but... How many of you were taught to tithe as a Christian? Yeah, okay. I was. I mean, when I grew up, when I became a Christian, I learned, look, the first tenth of everything I get goes to God. Just, I just assume it. And again, I'm not trying to make myself look good. Please don't hear that in me. But it's just assumed that the first tenth of everything we get is given. Many people set aside the first tenth of their income to give to the church, and that's an act of worship, and it supports the ministry of the church, and and, and it's, it's a good thing. Now, we do not require a legalistic clinging to any particular number or percentage of giving here. You don't see, thou shalt giveth a tenth of, of thy income uh, on the PRC church covenant. We, 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 we're not law people as far as that goes you know what we do teach you is we will teach you that christians must if you're going to be a an obedient christian give to the church to the support of the ministry to for the worship of god you need to be giving freely you need to be giving joyfully you need to be giving consistently on a regular basis you need to be giving in proportion to how the lord has blessed you, which is why a percentage makes a lot of sense. Guys, let's remember before anybody wants to cling tight to their first tenth, uh, God owns everything, and you need to be a good steward of your finances, and we need to all together be giving to the support of the church. But again, we don't try to use this verse as a club to bludgeon people into a particular percentage of their income. That's not how it works. Now, in this passage, we see a problem that's very typical of the Pharisees. Religious leaders here, they love to be sure that they got their monetary regulations right. They would tithe meticulously. 
They gave a tenth of what they had in their kitchen spice rack. I mean, that's what, dint, what, what, what mint and dill and cumin. I mean, mint, you know what mint is, right? Dill, you make pickles. Cumin, you make tacos. Uh, they, they took every tenth of that. Can you imagine you work on the salt? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Whoosh. One, two, three. I mean, they thought that was religious righteousness. That tithe of your spice rack was not required in the Old Testament law. But Jesus doesn't condemn them for doing it. He says, great, give a tenth of everything to the Lord. That's awesome. But the problem is, and Jesus points this out, is they were totally committed to giving their seed and their income rightly, but they cared nothing for things in the law of God that God says are more important than your spice rack. Remember, this is just in this afternoon in this conversation, Jesus told the Pharisees, the greatest commandment in the law, love the Lord your God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. These men were willing to give a tenth of their money to God, but they showed no love of God and no love of neighbor. And Jesus says the Pharisees neglecting these laws are awful. They neglect justice. They neglect mercy. They neglect faithfulness. And God wants those things, Jesus says, more than their rituals. Leviticus 19 verse 15 reads, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. God wants justice from his people. God does not allow his people to favor the rich, which all of us would applaud, right? That's right, the rich shouldn't get the extra, right? But God doesn't let us favor the poor either. God demands true justice. God commands that that we treat all people rightly, evenly, in accordance with his word. We must not give the rich a pass to commit crimes. We must not always take the side of the poor just because they're poor. We are to make the righteous standard of God's perfection our measuring line for, for everything we do. Micah 6.8 reads, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, we're supposed to do justice. And we're supposed to love being merciful and kind to other people. And we're supposed to walk with the Lord in humility because, I mean, what are we but a group of sinners saved by grace? And Jesus says that the Pharisees' practice of tithing their spices but ignoring mercy, Jesus says this is ridiculous. Jesus said, it's like you guys are like blind guides. You're like guys who can't see where they're going trying to instruct somebody else about where to step. Look, if we go hiking, friends, don't follow what I tell you when I say where to walk. I can't see where you're going. Jesus said, it's almost like these guys are the kind of guys that when they got a bowl of soup, they would drink it through their teeth. 
just to make sure nothing unclean like a little gnat could get in their mouth. But then they're so oblivious that they would open their mouths and swallow a whole camel. This is Jesus using sarcasm. This is Jesus using hyperbole to point out that the religious people of his day are not loving God, not even loving God's word, and are simply loving the rules they think make them look good. So Christians don't love rules, value what God values. Now let me be careful here. When we say don't love rules, I am not saying don't pay attention to the word of God. Because there are people out there that would say that the only way to love other people around us is if we accept them in everything they do and we never, not ever tell anybody they're doing anything wrong. That is not love. To allow a person to continue in their sin, to allow them to do things that will earn for them the wrath of God, that is not love. You remember the prophet Jonah? Yeah. Jonah said, I will not go preach against the city of Nineveh. It wasn't because he loved them. Why did Jonah not want to preach against the city of Nineveh? It wasn't that he didn't think the people were evil. He knew they were evil. Jonah didn't want to preach against the people of Nineveh because simply put, he hated them. He wanted God to judge them. He wanted the people to die. And so he didn't want to tell them about their danger. And he didn't want to tell them that they need to repent. Well, when we love people, we call people to the word of God. We call people to repent of sin. We call people to come to Jesus for salvation. And friends, when we do that, that may cause us to say things to people that are very hard. But... We only say hard things to people because we want God to be glorified and we want God's absolute best for others. If I look at you and I tell you something hard and offensive, it's going to be because I want God to be honored and I want God's best for you. That should be how you treat others too. God wants his people to love him and love others. God wants us to do true justice, not the mockery that is modern social justice, but real scripture-centered, God-honoring, even-handed biblical justice. And God wants us to love mercy. He wants us to be gracious. He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be loving. He wants us to be caring. He wants us to work together, helping each other along the path of godliness. And he does not want us to love our own little made-up rules, our own little personal pet peeves, more than we love people or more than we love him. Don't focus on man-centered religion, folks, but give others the gospel. Don't manipulate other people, but be honest. Don't love rules, but value what God values. You know what those have in common? Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a liar. Don't be unloving. Don't be ungodly. 
And all of these things remind us of how greatly you and I need to be transformed in Jesus Christ. We need to put off the old man. We need to put off our sin. We need to put on the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to rejoice that Jesus has lived out the righteousness that you and I have never, ever managed to live here. And we need to rejoice knowing that Jesus died to pay for our failings here. And we need to strive to honor the Lord by loving God, loving others, and loving his absolutely perfect word. Jesus pronounced woe on the Pharisees for religious hypocrisy. May, by the grace of God, we never fall under that kind of curse. May we instead find the grace and the blessing of God in being the people God calls us to be in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I say thank you for your word. I confess, Lord, this is a hard one today. I fail. It's easy to fail. And it's easy even to be smug thinking I wouldn't fail and then fail. There's a lot of law and there's a lot of exposed sin in this text today. God, my request is that you would please, oh please, use it not just to break our spirits, but yes, break our hearts before you and lead us to repentance as we find grace in Christ. God, be magnified. God, be glorified. God, save souls of sinners. And God, please, please grow us. Grow us as a church who love you and love others and love your word. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.